Welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast, helping you to forge a lifelong reliance on God. To find out more about the Foundry Church or how to get involved, visit us at thefoundrychurch.com. All right, this morning, hey guys, we are starting a new series of sermons. So here I am. Everybody take a deep breath, all right? We're starting a series in the book of Revelation. I announced that we're going to be doing this last Sunday, and you would not believe the interesting emails that I have received. Uh, not necessarily from everybody in the church here, uh, but just from the community. Like, hey, like, how do you interpret this? Or, or how are you, is your church going to talk about this? And, and what does this mean in, in relation to this? And it just, it's crazy, right? And so here's the thing that I have discovered through those questions and through some of the conversations that I've had with you guys. Right? I think there are two camps. There are two groups of people who look at the book of Revelation. First, there are some of you who only have 65 books in your Bible. Now, if you don't know, there's 66, right? But you have 65 in your Bible because the 66th one, the last one, Revelation, it's a doozy and you don't want to go anywhere near that one, right? And now don't raise your hand, right? We know who you are, <coughs> Christina, right? Right? We know who you are, I'm just teasing, right? but I get it, right? Revelation can be an intimidating and an overwhelming and maybe even a little bit of a scary book of the Bible. Right? And don't even get me started on all the weird things listed in the book of Revelation, probably why I've had so many questions and emails about how do we interpret X, Y, and Z, right? And we'll get there in the coming weeks. And so I get it, right? Right, when um, I get it, why some of us, we avoid the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, like the plague. Now, that's one group of people. And then there's another group of people, some of you who are obsessed with the book of Revelation. Right? You only have one book of their Bible. Right? Forget about the, uh, the Gospels, the, the life and ministry of Jesus. You want to hear about the flaming tongues and the four horsemen, right? That's what you're about. You have timelines lining your walls. You, you have every commentary in the world on the book of Revelation. You, you've watched like every and read every left behind movie book. Right? Some people might mistake you for a fan of Nicolas Cage. Right? You're like one of those detectives that you see in the movies with lines of yarn and red strings crisscrossing your walls, except instead of murder suspects, right? You have pictures of, of white and black horses and, like, natural disasters, and, and you play weird old blues songs from the 20s, right? You know exactly, exactly, without a doubt, maybe just a little bit of doubt, when Jesus is coming back, right? You know it. You have it marked on your calendar. You're getting, you're getting ready. That's the other group of people that are obsessed with the book of Revelation. Now, listen, this obsession is real. It really is. I once read about a preacher who claimed with a straight face, with a straight face, that the literal building blocks for the new temple in Israel have already been constructed. They've already been constructed, and with a straight face, he said they're being stored in the basements of Kmarts all over the United States. He said this with a straight face. He said they are ready to be shipped to Israel and used to build a new temple. Seriously, and if that's true, right, the building blocks are in Kmarts, we're in trouble. <laughs> right? We're in trouble because there's only like three Kmarts left in the entire United States of America. So if that, right, if there's even that many. And so God might be coming back sooner or later, depending on how we, we view this whole Kmart thing. Right? It's just confusing. We don't know what, what to think or what way is up and down. Right? Again, who knows? Right? Revelation can sometimes attract some of God's more eccentric followers. And if that's you, don't raise your hand. We already know who you are. Right? Listen, though. Right? I know that Revelation has become this controversial book of the Bible. Right, people uh, standing on the, the street corner or, or yelling th through uh, your TV that the end is near. And so before we dive in, before we peel this onion, this book of Revelation over the next six weeks, I want to lay a little bit of, of groundwork about what 
you can expect during this series of sermons and what you can not expect during this series of sermons. Right, to be clear, this, this series of sermons is not going to be a verse-by-verse explanation of everything in Revelation and how it's referencing prophecy and, and all of that, right? right? If it was, then we would be here literally until Jesus does come back. And this series... It's not really going to be me standing up here and exploring all the Greek words and how they're used in other places and how that correlates to what, what John is trying to write about in the book of Revelation, as many like to do with this particular book. Right? It's not going to be this, this verse-by-verse breakdown of exactly what each Greek word and how it, how it kind of intersects with other parts of Scripture. Right, and for those of you who love uh, the book of Revelation, I'm not going to tell you whether I'm an amillennialist, a postmillennialist, or a premillennialist. Sorry, right? I'm a Christian. Right? I, I, I'm a Jesusist. Right? Right? I know some of you are dying to know where I stand on that, and it's I stand on Jesus. Right? He's my foundation. So here's what you can expect. Right? Our driving question throughout this series is not, what can Revelation tell me about the specific date and time of the end time? Right? Not the, the exact date and time and, and how those events are going to happen. Our driving question is this. Right? Our, our driving question will be, as it should be as we read any book of the Bible, what can Revelation, or whatever book of the Bible, tell me about being a faithful follower of Jesus? That's how we read the Bible, right? What can this book, what can this book, this revelation tell me about forging my life on God? How is it going to help me to do that better and and more intently and with more intention, right? How is this going to help me forge that lifelong reliance on God, on Jesus? You see, the truth is this. The book of Revelation has been hijacked by TV evangelists. Uh, wacko fundamentalists, and people who do not understand the basic rules of reading ancient literature. Right? Revelation's meaning has been twisted and it's been manipulated and turned into something that it never was meant to be. As Matt Proctor, one of my favorite, favorite preachers, he's a uh, professor, uh, university president, uh, he, a theologian, he says this in his book, Victorious. He says, while Revelation certainly discusses the future, <laughs> its primary purpose is not to reveal secret dates on the calendar, but to revive struggling disciples of Christ. And if we learned anything in our last series of sermons, disciples of Christ are people who aren't consumers, but followers. Right, So this book that we're about to enter into and look at and read over the next six weeks is to revive us. It's, it's supposed to bring something inside of us to life. Right? The truth is, the book of Revelation is this. It's a, it's a how to survive the battle type book. It's how do we survive the battle. It's a manual that God gives us, God's soldiers, people forging their life on him. It's a, it's a way forward out of the darkness. It's the original light at the end of the tunnel. Right? All of its imaginary and all of its prophecy, all of its words are meant to point us toward something. You see, all right, we got to get this foundry church. Like we gotta, we got to grab a hold of this. We need to grab a hold of this truth before we move on. Take a look at this, right? Revelation is not a mystery to be solved. It is a hope to be revealed. That's the basis of this whole entire series of sermons. Right, guys, it is not a mystery to be solved. It is a hope to be revealed. Right? Heck, the first words of the book in the original language of Greek, that lasted a minute, all right? <laughs> Said I wasn't going to use the Greek, but I know, right? I promise, but this, this is important, all right? In the original words, the first words of this, all right, take a look. The revelation of Jesus Christ, all right? That's the very first words of the book of Revelation. Now, the word that we translate as revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, all right? You've heard that word, apocalypsis, all right? This is a combining of actual two Greek words. The first word means removing, all right, removing something. The second word of apocalypsis, the combining of those words, means 
a covering, all right? right? Uh, it particularly, it references like a woman's veil, right? That a, a woman would wear like on a wedding day or, or uh, in first century Israel, a veil of some sort, right? So, so the term apocalypsis literally means this, right? The removal of that which conceals, all right? That, that's, that's the word revelation, right? It's the removal of that which conceals, right? So Foundry Church, the very first words of the book of Revelation are this, right? The revealing of Jesus Christ. It's not supposed to be hiding anything. It's not supposed to be a mystery. It's the revealing of our Lord. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ, the revealing of the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope that we have is right there in the first words of the book of the Bible, of this book. We've always been meant to understand Revelation because we were also meant to see Jesus in it and through it. Right? Revelation is not a puzzle to be solved, right? but a rescue guide to get us safely home to Jesus. That's what it is. right? It's the, the QRF. If you're a, a military person, it's that quick reactionary force. Right? I've been watching SEAL Team on TV the last few months. It, revelation is the hope in the darkness. That's what it is, right? And now I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But I, I, I want to start with a, a story to illustrate all of this, to serve up a, a little bit of context. Two weeks ago, uh, you've heard me talk about him before. My nephew, Simeon, who's like 10 years old, 11 years old, 10. He's 10 years old, so he's at that really fun age, that cool age. Right? He had his first night football game. Uh, it's not real football, it's flag football, whatever. All right? His first football game, though, under the big lights. Right? That's a big deal. Right? You may not be a sports person, but if, if you're going to play under those big stadium lights, that is a big deal. Right? Playing under those lights was an amazing experience for me the first time I did it. Right? And so when I heard about this game, I immediately remembered the feelings of my first game under the big lights. I played real football, tackle football, not flag football. But that, that joy, right, that, that feeling that nothing in the world could be cooler than this, that, that me and my buddies, man, we were, we were some tough dudes, right? right? That's what the lights do for you, right? I, I held my shoulders a little higher. I was a little bit prouder. I'm even, like, tearing up right now as I think, as I think about this. So with all those feelings... All those feelings mustering up inside of me. I was so excited to talk to Simeon about the game that he had the next day. Right? So on Monday after school, I called Simeon to see if he had the amazing feelings that all football players have when they play that first game under the big lights. And when I got him on the phone, I was so excited. And I said, well, how did it feel? What was it like? Your first game, your first game under those big lights, how did it feel? And Simeon looked at me dead in the face, right, through the, the FaceTime. And he said, well, they were a little bright. They hurt my eyes. Oh, right here, right? I was crushed. So after my, my initial disappointment, Simeon told me about a few of the things that he felt like he could learn and improve on and work on and, and all of that. And, and at the end of the conversation, I, I finally said, well, what was the score? Did you actually win? And, and Simeon, being the genius that he is, said, well, how do you think we did, Uncle Andrew? <laughs> and pulling out the most diplomatic answer that I possibly could come up with, I said, I think you did your best, Simeon. Now look, without skipping a beat, he looked at me again and he said, oh, you think we lost. <laughs> and guess what? He wasn't wrong, right? I'll be honest. I knew they lost, right? They won one game last year, right? They're horrible, right? Simeon's a running back and he looks like me and he's 10, right? <laughs> they didn't win. And I won't even tell you the score because apparently they don't keep the score at these things anymore. But he did not win because he kept score. Now, while this story is funny, it's hilarious, it got me thinking. Right? It got me thinking about winning and losing. Right? I had this poster in my room. It's a poster from the famous football coach, Vince Lombardi. Uh, and he once said this, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Right? We've heard that, Vince Lombardi. And, and another football coach, Paul Bear Bryant of, of Alabama, 
all right, looking at Donna out there, he said this. He said, winning isn't everything, but it sure beats anything that comes in second. Right? And then one of my personal favorites, the famous baseball manager, Leo DeRocher, was often attributed with saying, nice guys finish last. He was attributed with that. And off of that saying, he said this. He said, I never said that you can't be a nice guy and win. I said that if I was playing third base and my mother rounded third with the winning run, I'd trip her. Right? That's great stuff, right? That's good stuff, right? Now, I was an athlete all of my youth, and let me tell you, right, I've been on teams that won every single game, and I've been on teams that just got excited about putting a single point on the board, and if, it, if we didn't put a point on the board, we were excited for the snacks afterward, right? And even if you're not an athlete, you've been there, winning and losing and success and victory and, and coming out on top, right? Well, they are, uh, there's something that is in all of us that, that thought about all of that, winning and losing and success at one point or another, and, and the ramifications of winning and losing and, and striving to win and to lose, right? Not to strive to lose. But if we are all honest... If we're all honest and we just kind of zoom out and take a breath, most of our lives are just, just trying. Just trying. Right? We're, we're just trying to get through. Right? We're just trying to, to make it to tomorrow. We're just trying not to get blown out. Right? I'm not naive enough to believe that, that all of you are doing all right. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I am very aware of how not all right most of us are doing. It's true, right? Foundry Church, it's just true, right? This reality confronts us afresh every time we listen to the, the, the daily news or, or open our email or even we look in the mirror, <laughs> right? right? The, this, the, this world is on the brink of another major world war. There's a pandemic that just seems to never leave. Our government lets us down no matter what side we think we're on, Right? Time and time again, right, that is just, it's just on the news, right? It's depressing, right? And inflation, all this stuff, right? And then on a personal level, it just seems like we look around in our neighborhoods and in this world, and it seems like the wicked always prosper and the, the righteous languish. Our loved ones get sick, some even die. Our friends disappoint us. Our, our bodies deteriorate. Our hearts grow discouraged. Uh, on a daily base, basis, we struggle with sin, and it just seems like a losing effort. We keep missing the mark of where God wants us to be. We can't get it right. And each morning, we're just taking one step at a time. Because that's all we can do. Trying to survive. We're not even thinking about winning. We're just trying to put some points, any points on the board. We're just trying to do our best, not get blown out. Right? And then some days we find ourselves yelling out to God in our head. Or even out loud, we yell this, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Don't kid yourself. We've all been there. Is there any hope? I, I mean, and so as we start this dive into the book of Revelation, that is exactly that feeling that we have right now. That feeling, is there any hope? Forget winning. Is there any hope just to not get blown out? That's where the, the, the Christian church of ancient Rome was at. Right, when this book of Revelation was written, that's, that's where the church was at. They were feeling the same things. They were experiencing the same things. They were crying out, is there any hope? When Revelation was written, uh, the, Roman Empire of the, the Roman emperor of the time was a uh, man named uh, Domitian. You may have heard him from your history classes, and he was a, a pretty horrible guy. Anyone who disagreed with him or anyone he deemed to be a threat was just eliminated. And I'm not talking about just eliminated from power. I mean eliminated. Right? He had dead, gone, six feet under, buying the farm in the sky, crossing the river, kicking the bucket, right? sleeping with the fishes, pushing up daisies. He was, they were killed. I did a lot of research on that line. <laughs> However you want to say it, he killed a lot of people. 
Christians, the, the early church. He even killed three of his own family members. And during his reign, he implemented a law uh, requiring the worship of the Roman gods. And in a move that surprised absolutely no one because he was an idiot, he added himself to that list of Roman gods. Right? So it was like Zeus and Apollo and, and Domitian. Worship them. This guy was a dummy. Right? And well, when the Christians refused to worship the Roman gods and Domitian, right, he charged them, ironically, with atheism. And suddenly, Christians were public enemy number one. Now, if, if you follow Jesus, if you were forging your life on him, if you were really, truly doing that, you, you were harassed, you were arrested, you were beaten, and you were even executed, like we said. Put to death in horrible ways. Right? And so these Christians, the people forging their life on Jesus, they went underground, literally. They literally went underground. They began to dig out rooms in the catacombs beneath the ancient cities where they could meet secretly and worship and bury their dead. They were literally in the dark, not thinking about winning, right? Just thinking about surviving. They were, they were still crying out, is there any hope? Is there any hope? And God hears their cries. There is hope. Right? So God, he, he sent a vision to John. And while John was in exile, because he wouldn't worship the mission either, and God said, I'm going to show you something, old John, my buddy. And I want you to write it down, and I want you to send it to the, to the local outposts, to the local churches of my kingdom. So John obeyed. And this is John the disciple. Right, John, this, he's old, right? John obeyed. He wrote this letter to the churches in seven of the major cities of the Roman Empire at that time, all along one long mail route. And so now we have the book of Revelation, right? Some of those, those letters. So open, open up your Bibles and with me, turn to the book, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're going to be uh, through the first three chapters here and there. So just open it up to chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, you can take the Bibles that are right there in front of you, in the seats. Or if you're watching online, tuning in online, and you want a Bible, just put a comment up or send us a message on, on Facebook there. You don't have to have a Facebook account to do that. On the live stream, you just send it, and we'll send you a Bible. All right. Now, like I said, I, I'm not going to go verse by verse, but for today, we'll be in the first three chapters of, of this book. All right, look with me first at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 uh, through 5, the first part of 5. It says this. It says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the provinces of Asia. Grace and peace to you. All right, now, now put your finger there. Grace, the word grace there, was traditionally a greeting used by the Greeks or Gentiles, right? Non-Jewish people in this Roman world. That was how they started letters, right? Grace to you. And then peace, right? Peace was the traditional greeting used by Jews in their writings. So right again, right from the very beginning, from the very beginning, John says this letter is for everybody. Nothing is hidden here. It's for everybody. That's why I'm going to say grace and peace to you from the very beginning. Right? And he's saying all of y'all, all y'all are on the struggle bus right now. Right? And this is for all of you, every tribe, tongue, and nation, so listen up. That's why he, he greets everybody. Right? So he says, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the providence of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ. And just stop right there. Again, to everybody, to every, every believer, every non-believer, every Jew, every Gentile, every Greek, to everybody, right? I'm writing this letter from, from the God who transcends time, right, but also exists in this time, it says, this moment, this darkness that you are experiencing, and from the Holy Spirit that is perfectly whole, right? That is what it, it means when he says sevenfold. Right, that's what that number means. The perfect, whole spirit of God. And from Jesus, he's saying, you all remember him, right? <laughs> right? So, so from the very beginning, 
The disciple John establishes that this letter is for everyone, and it is for, uh, it's from God who sees everything, knows everything, and is perfect, whole in everything. He sees you in the dark catacombs of the Roman Empire. He sees you hiding in your house to worship. He sees you in the pain of another broken relationship. He sees you in the fear that you have from another war beginning and taking your loved ones off to fight. He sees you in the sadness of death in those catacombs. Even now, he sees you, and he is perfectly and wholly with you. He's with you in Rome. He's he's with you in Burke, Virginia. He's with you wherever you are. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. That's what he's saying. He doesn't just see you, right? He he has something to say to you. And so John says, listen up, everybody. You're all struggling. Let's get this right. Right then, for the next two chapters in the book of Revelation, he writes personalized letters to each church and to us today. And as you read them, which I encourage you to do later today, it will take you ten minutes. Right, Read the first three chapters of Revelation. Right, you'll notice two main reasons as you read those, and we're going to look at them right now. You'll notice two main reasons for the cries in the dark. Why they're, they're shouting, is there any hope? Why they're asking those questions. Right, why is there a reason for hopelessness in, in these churches? Right, or or the, these churches of revelations and they're crying out. Right? The first, why they're crying out is this. Familiarity. Familiarity. Right, that's, the, that's the first reason. Now let me explain. Right? John, like I said, was really, really old at this time. Right? He was an old dude and he was writing Revelation. He was in his 90s. One commentary I read said that he could have been as old as 99 years old. Right, so this old guy has seen a lot of life, including the beginning of the church itself. He was there living when the actual book of Acts, the, the book of Acts details the beginning of the church, our church. Christians, us, right? It details the beginning of that. And he was there as it was happening in real time all around him. He saw the church started by a group of tight-knit believers who were deeply and madly devoted to Jesus and to his movement. They were the original blacksmiths of forging their life on Jesus. He was there. He was leading that. He saw it. He experienced it. Right? They were... The first to exhibit things like welcoming authenticity and anchoring truth and transforming generosity and equipping growth and, and radical expansion. Right? They were experiencing that and he was there with that, leading in that. Values that we carry even here today at the Foundry. Things that we, we hope we all feel and experience as we forge our life on God. Right? It was an amazing time to be alive for John. And now... After that, at the time of this writing, let's just say it was a little different, right? It was a little different. Look, look at what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 4 through 5. It says, but I have this complaint against you, right? Revelation 2, verse 4, it says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. I have this complaint you don't love me like you, you used to. You don't love each other like you used to. Look how far you have fallen and strayed away. Right to the, the church in Ephesus, he says, remember how it used to be. Remember when it all started. Remember your first love. Well, it looks like you, you kicked that love to the curb, and now you're out with some rando named Jimmy. <laughs> you forgot. You moved on. You forgot your first love, your true love. What happened? In chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, when you read that later today, you will see that the church in Pergamum uh, was not doing much better. They didn't just have one false teacher in their midst. Right? They had gotten to the point where they had multiple false teachers in their midst. And in verse 20, you see the church in, in Thy- I'm gonna, Thyatira had a, a literal Jezebel in their midst seducing people into sexual acts. I mean, that's one way to get people to church. Easter egg hunts, prostitutes, but seriously, right? That's what they were doing. It's what they were doing, right? 
They just got away from what was right, what was true, what was, what was Jesus. And then in the third chapter, we see this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, the second part of verse 1 says, I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You look pretty good. You have a reputation for doing good, for being alive, but you're dead. Right, the, the church in Sardis has full-blown hypocrites sitting in their pews or on their floors. I don't know if they had pews back then. And these, these people looked like they had it all together spiritually. Right? But, it, it, but it says they were dead. They were dead. John is not pulling any punches here. Right? The, the churches were falling apart. So, so what happened? Well, it seems that they had become too familiar with Jesus. They had lost sight of who he is. They, they lost sight of their Lord and their Savior, right? Surely they, they heard the stories, probably from John himself. They knew what Jesus was capable of, but they saw Jesus more as a Mr. Rogers, a, a friendly neighbor, someone who was nice to have around, right? Jesus and his sacrifice no longer took their breath away. It wasn't what they forged their life on. Listen, listen, when Easter rolled around, it was just another day for them. Think about that. They weren't even removed from the generation that experienced the resurrection of Christ. So when Easter rolled around, eh, it's no big deal. Other things took priority. Jesus was just one more thing on the list, one more box to check. He was in the room. But no one seemed to notice he was there. They did not see Jesus for all that he was. They made him too small. They lowered Jesus on their priority list. He was not up there as the thing to forge their life on. Right, think of it like this. There used to be this song that we sang when we were little. And looking back, it was a pretty horrible song. Pretty bad theologically. Uh, but it said this, if I had a little white box to put my Jesus in, I'd take him out and I'd kiss his face and I would share him with a friend. Right? Listen, growing up in the church was a weird thing. Right? Don't judge me. Right? But it's a song that kids sing at church, not here. We have better theology. All right? But here's the thing. Right? These, these churches thought they could, they could put Jesus in a box and just leave him there sitting in a corner. That's where they had gotten, right? And when we do that, take a look. Here's the issue. Here's the consequence of that. When we make Jesus too small, it is easy to make room for sin. At least the song says we take him out and we share him with a friend. All right? Not all that bad. But when we leave him in that box or we leave him in our, in our pocket, we make Jesus too small when we do that, and it makes it too easy. To have room in our lives, in our situations, in our calendars for sin. Right? We miss the mark. We begin to forge our life on other things. Not Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all past, present, and future. When Jesus is small, when he is familiar, when he's Mr. Rogers in our lives, it's easy to compromise. It's easy to take one step in the wrong direction because it's just one step. Jesus won't mind. Jesus is nice. He loves me. Right? He likes it in that little box that I put him in. At least he's there. He's not in their box. He's in mine, but, you know, we start to make excuses. We say to ourselves, it's just one drink. Even though I know I have a problem controlling myself, Jesus won't mind. It's just one season away from church. It won't matter in the grand scheme of things. Jesus will forgive me. It's just one website. No big deal. Jesus will forgive me. And that's true. Jesus will forgive you. But that's not the full picture. It is a small one-sided view of who Jesus is. In a piece that was written, an older piece that was written by a man named Wilbur Reese, he describes a small Jesus like this. Just listen to this while I read this. Just listen. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not, not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a, a snooze in the sunshine. 
I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or to pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. So I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Now, I don't know if I've read something that describes the American church better than that. <laughs> right, man. Right? When, when we make Jesus small, we make an idol out of our own comfort. Right? When Jesus is too small, we make an idol out of our own desires. We forge our life on temporary, crappy things. I really don't want that for us. Foundry Church, I really, really don't want that for us. Because that's cheap. Man, that's weak. Short-sighted. It's safe. And it's not the adventure of living life to the full, living our best life, a life that is forged on God. It's an adventure. Because when we do that, when we miss the mark, just like these, these churches in Revelation, these first few, you see, when we become too familiar with Jesus, again, this is, this is the problem. It's not that we don't think of Jesus. It's that we don't think enough of Jesus. Think about that. It's not that we don't think about Jesus. It's that we don't think enough of Jesus. Enough, time-wise, but enough of his grandeur, of who he is. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, past, present, and future. The Savior of the world. We cannot become too familiar, and that's the first thing we're learning in the book of Revelation. Right? We think he can be contained. We think our little uh, small sin is, is no big deal, but that's missing the mark. It, it won't matter to our small little Jesus. Right? It's easy to picture that Jesus was the, uh, this lamb, and everyone's smiling. We have that picture in our heads, but we forget about the Jesus in his temple, right? turning over tables with righteous anger, getting righteously upset with people who made God too small, because that's what they did. Right? So in Revelation chapter 1, John fixes that familiarity, and he gets real. Right? I mean, again, like, look at what it says starting in verse 13 of, 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 of chapter 1. He says, and standing, right? I mean, this is not a familiar little God that you can keep in a box. He says, he says, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, right? The, the name that Jesus gave to himself, right? The Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool and, and white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like a mighty ocean of waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. I mean, let's just go through some of that stuff. Because that's not a small God that we can put in a box or in our back pocket and just keep there, right? And that's a big God. I mean, look at that. He's wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. Right? This is the clothing of a king. Right? The, the simple Jewish rabbi that, that you heard stories about, John, is saying, well, those rags of his earthly life are gone. They're out in the trash. He traded up and he's reminding us of his true identity. That he's sovereign over the universe. So y'all better recognize. <laughs> he's king of kings, John is saying. Right? John continues, his eyes are like flames of fire. Right? Now you know when I was uh, growing up, many of you know I was a preacher's kid. My dad was a preacher. And when I was doing something in church that I wasn't supposed to be doing, which was like every Sunday... All my dad had to do was, like, look at me. All right? That's all he had to do. He just had to look at me. Now, right, uh, I grew up in a bigger church, and so I could be, like, 50, 60 yards away, like, in the back of the auditorium, right, like, really far, like, out in the parking lot. And all he had to do was, be like, right? I knew better, right? He just, his eyes, 
right? It was something about his eyes, right? There was fire in his eyes, right? And that's how I imagine Jesus' eyes, right? In this description of who he is, right? Fire that looks at you and says this, I see you. I see what you are letting sneak into your life and sneak into the church, my church. Fire in his eyes, like we read. And John continues, it says, his feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace. Right? That means like his feet were like a statue. Right? We've all seen bronze statues, and they were strong and steady. His feet are immovable, and they're a firm foundation, like we just sang about. Right? And then it says, he held seven stars in his right hand. Right, another little song I was reminded of. Uh, you probably sang when you were little or if you watched that really cool movie, Rocket Man, back in the day. <laughs> Jim knows. <laughs> yeah, Rocket Man. You go watch that after you read the first three chapters of Revelation <laughs> today. Right? You got the whole world in his hands. Right? You know what movie I'm talking about now. You got the whole world in his hands. Right? You know that song. Right? Even that song is too small for our God. Right? He doesn't just have the whole world in his hands. He has galaxies, entire planetary systems rotating around the stars in his hands. He's big. And that's what John's reminding us of. <laughs> Our big God. Right? Listen, we could go on and on, but you get the point. Jesus is not small. Right? He's bigger than anything we can imagine or comprehend, more powerful than anything we have ever known. And we must not forget that. Right, this message is clear to the churches in these Asian providences, and it should be us, to us too, right? When we have lost hope, when we have lost hope, we take a look at how big our God is. Man, when we're sitting in the depths of the catacombs fearing for our life, we take report of how big our God is. When everything around us seems like it's just falling apart and we can't get right, we're just trying to put a point on the board, let alone win the game, we take note of how big our God is. The God that we forge our life on, the God who put his spirit inside of us and is living through us and in us. When we have lost hope, take a look at how big God is. You'll never become too familiar. You'll never start to, to just pass Easter and lose the hope of the resurrection and, and forge your life on anything else. Remember how big God is. Right? If you feel like the temptation to take just one step in the wrong direction is too strong, remember that Jesus is not a sweet old grandpa that just winks at our sin and says, Oh, Andrew, you silly little guy. That's not what he does. He's larger than life. He's towering. He's a flame-eyed, sword-tongued Lord of all who will not be put into a corner. That's what we're reading here. Right? He is in the midst of his church's sin, in the midst of our personal sin, in the midst of our complacency, in the midst of our familiarity. Right, some of us are, are looking around and, and saying, where is God? Why won't he take this temptation away? Why won't he fix this thing that just won't budge in my life? Right, there is no hope. We're saying these things and Jesus is standing there tall and he's shouting. He's saying, look, I am the true Christ who takes away the sin of the world and restores all hope. That's who I am. Remember that. So if familiarity is the first reason that we have hopelessness, right, that these churches in Revelation have hopelessness, the second that we see from these seven churches in Revelation is this. It's just straight fear. It's just downright fear. Right? So when you read the, the first three chapters later on today, you'll see this right away. Right? Right? Here, here's the thing. Right? Some of these churches, they were being obedient to Jesus. They were, right? They were doing everything they could to follow Jesus. They, they weren't familiar and complacent, and yet they were still taking a beating. Right? They were still not winning. Right? There was, was family rejection. There was uh, lost jobs, life's threatened, darkness. They literally had to go underground, like we said. We see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, that the church in Smyrna was afraid. It said, very afraid of what was happening and what was going to happen, right? We're there, right? 
we're afraid of things that are coming on in our lives, happening, right? And then in chapter 3, we see, we see that in the church in Philadelphia, it's described as having a little strength. It just has a little bit of strength left. It's a little bit of gas in the tank. They're exhausted, they're tired, and they are afraid of what could possibly happen next. And they were just waiting for the shoe to drop. Sound familiar to anyone? Right? right? But God, through John, has a word for them too. In chapter 1, as we see that big, huge, powerful, larger-than-life Jesus, look, look what happens in verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, when I saw him, all right, this is John speaking, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Think about that, right? I mean, John falls on his face in fear. And let's be honest before we tease him. We would too, right? We would too, wouldn't we? Right? We would all be a little afraid. But Jesus says, hey, John, it's me. I got stars in my hand. I got a sword coming out. You know, I'm this big God. Don't be afraid. It's me. You may have become so familiar with me that you forgot what I, I, I can really do. But it's still me. It's me, your buddy, your height. Hey, you know me. I'm your old friend. I, I called you my best friend when I was on earth, my beloved one. Don't be afraid. I'm the ancient of days, the ruler of every king on earth, the one who died on the cross. He says, it's me. And oh, yeah, that death and that Hades stuff, the thing that you are terrified of, well, I have the keys. I have the key, so no matter what happens to you, I have a way out. Don't forget, I once died too, but I'm not dead anymore, John. I have the keys, and you can have them too. Right? Jesus, through John, knew exactly what the hopelessness of fear felt like, and he had been through the worst things imaginable that this planet had to offer. And he died, but he made a way out of the darkness and then reminded his followers that it was available to them as well, that it was a community key, that it was available to them, that this key was for all of them. How reassuring. How how much hope can we take out of that as a church? Right? The, the great, big, terrifying Jesus right, from a, a few verses earlier, this powerful Jesus that, that just can expel that familiarity, show us anew, right, is also a comforting Jesus who stands in our fear with us and he shows us a way out. Right? The, the graphic for this series is a lamb's head overlaying a lion's head. Right? This is the full picture of Jesus. Right? He's not just a cute little cuddly lamb that we take out whenever we want. He's also a, a lion with claws and teeth and a mighty roar. Right? Jesus is not just a, a kind-hearted Savior who was our sacrifice, the ultimate lamb, right? the ultimate sacrifice for us. He was also a righteous fighting warrior. He's not either or, he's both and. That's who he is. When we are too familiar, he reminds us of his lion heart. And when we are afraid of the pain that might be around the corner, he reminds us that the Lamb of God, right, has died and taken away the sins of the world and the fear of everything, even death, is expelled. Foundry Church, that's our Jesus. That's our Jesus, right? Most of those, those first words of the book, revelation of Jesus, are already ringing true. Right? The revelation of Jesus. You see, Jesus, right? you're seeing him. The full picture, right? We're getting a, a clear picture. That's what this book is all about. And now as we, as we wrap up today and as the, the band comes back up, I, I want to wrap up with the same words that the end every letter to those seven churches in Asia. Right, when, when you read all of those letters today, the first three chapters, which again, right, do that, it will take you ten minutes. It ends with these words. To the one who is victorious. To the one who is victorious. Right, some translations that you might have will read, uh, to him who overcomes, or to everyone who over, overcomes. Every letter ends with this image. At the end of every letter, Jesus says through John, I know you have forgotten about me. 
right? But if you will just remember me, right? If you'll just look at the full picture of me, you'll be victorious. At the end of every letter, Jesus says, I know you are scared. You don't know what's going to happen. You have things in your life that are just, just clouding your judgment, right? But hang in there. I am with you. And in the end, you will be victorious. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 says it like this. It says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. As a victor's crown, I, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus is saying, just be faithful. Just remember me. Just fear not. Just be faithful and you will be victorious. Maybe not on this side of eternity, but you will be victorious because I am victorious. That's the message of the first part of Revelation. Forge ahead. Right? When you feel trapped in the darkness, when you are crying out in the void, is there any hope? Forge ahead. Because Jesus in the book of Revelation are yelling out to the darkness, help is on the way. Help is on the way. This picture of Jesus, this full picture of Jesus, this lion and this lamb in the very first chapter of Revelation reminds us that a Savior has come and is coming again. And this time he will not come as a baby in a manger, but as a king riding a war horse. And this time he will not be delivered into the hands of his enemies for our sake, but he will deliver us from our enemies. He will not come humbly as a human carpenter, but as a warrior with power and might and all authority under heaven and on earth. He will come to take us from the edge of our hopelessness and deliver us a victory. This is the message of Revelation. If we stay faithful, Foundry Church, get this, right? don't, don't let this just slide by. If we stay faithful to who Jesus is in what seems like the middle of a hopeless story or a hopeless situation, we will be victorious at the end of the story. Not because of anything that we can do or are, but because of who he is because he's the victor. That is the good news that his followers of those seven churches needed then, and it's the good news that we need today. When you find yourself asking, is there any hope? The first three chapters of this book say resounding, yes. A hero. A hero is coming. Victory is on the way. Let's stand together as the church and worship him.